Good afternoon. I'm Hussein Hakani. I'm director for South and Central Asia here at uh, the Hudson Institute. And it's a pleasure for me today to host or moderate this discussion on the 100-year marathon, the book by uh, Michael Pillsbury, uh, who is now a senior fellow and director for Chinese strategy here at the uh, Hudson Institute. He's a distinguished defense policy advisor, former high-ranking government official, and author of numerous books and reports on China. He served under the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administrations. Um, the book, uh, which I commend to everyone in the audience, preferably properly bought in hardcover, uh, paid for. That's the way one helps fellow authors. Uh, actually reveals how the People's Republic of China, since its founding, has been pursuing a long-term goal to reestablish Chinese global preeminence. And Michael thinks that it has outwitted the United States in the process. Um, not long ago, I wrote a book on Pakistan-U.S. relations after having served as Pakistan's ambassador to the U.S., uh, titled Magnificent Delusions, in which I make a similar argument. Uh, it seems, it seems, it seems, your, your it book. seems everybody manages <laughs> to outwit uh, Washington D.C. And here's my take as as a foreigner who has dealt with the United States, admires the United States, and loves Americans. Uh, that the reason is that the Americans always assume uh, that the others basically want the same things as they do. So there's an assumption, you know. Uh, that, that that's what they want, so therefore, if we can just find, and they have a relatively simple worldview. American foreign policy, since America's preeminence after the Second World War, in particular as a superpower, has been based on a very simple binary. Who can we bomb? Who can we take out to lunch? So, so China is a unique country because it went from being the country that was on the to bomb list uh, to take out to lunch list. And of course, the lunch has become a many-course menued lunch. Therefore, it has become far more interesting. Uh, before we get started with Michael's comments and uh, my own question and answer with him and then open it to questions and answers from all of you, uh, we have a message uh, from Congressman Randy Forbes, who is the chairman uh, of the China Caucus uh, in the House of Representatives. He could not join us in person, but his message to us uh, and his comments will be read out by my colleague, Caroline Stewart. The, pre the press secretary of the Hudson Institute. Indeed. So I'd like to read uh, Congressman Forbes' prepared statement for this morning. While I regret not being able to join you in person today, it is a pleasure to have this opportunity to share some brief thoughts on the 100-year marathon and the contributions of Dr. Mike Pillsbury to this tremendously important debate about the future trajectory of Chinese power. I have long valued Dr. Pillsbury's insights on China and the Asia-Pacific region. He combines knowledge of Chinese history, culture, and politics with an understanding of U.S. security interests and the tools required to protect those interests. Whether as a congressional staffer, a member of multiple presidential administrations, a consultant to the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment, or as a Hudson Institute scholar, Dr. Pillsbury has rendered important contributions to our nation's understanding of China and its long-term relationship with the United States. Part of what makes the 100-year marathon such a unique contribution to the literature on Sino-American relations is Mike's recounting of zone evolution of the issue. Rather than simply choosing a camp and sticking comfortably within it, as happens far too often on important foreign policy issues, 
Mike's views on China changed as the facts on the ground changed. His intellectual honesty led him to see China as a potential long-term competitor of the United States, requiring the serious application of long-term competitive strategies. And he has been power a powerful voice articulating what those strategies should look like. As we look at the century ahead, it is more important than ever that the U.S. look to the U.S.-China relationship holistically and in the context of a long-term extended competition that will play out over multiple areas and over the course of many years. I am committed to ensuring that America's presence in the Asia-Pacific, particularly in the military realm, remains robust and is continually evolving to meet new challenges. Areas like unmanned aviation, the U.S.'s enduring advantage in the undersea domain, and our advantage in emerging technologies like directed energy must be appropriately resourced. I want to thank you all for the work you do in promoting a strong U.S. national defense and a continued U.S. presence in the Asia-Pacific. It is America's commitment to the region that has done so much to ensure peace and prosperity over the last seven decades. We have an opportunity today to put in place policies that will allow this presence to endure for another seven decades and beyond. This is an important book by a serious thinker in the field, and his recommendations offer much for policymakers to consider. I thank you for allowing me to share a few thoughts with you, and I thank Mike Pillsbury for his invaluable contributions. <laughs> well, I would like uh, Michael Pillsbury uh, to start off with a few remarks about his book. Um, as I see it, Michael, uh, the critical question in your book is a discussion of the China dream and how uh, the U.S. may have wittingly or unwittingly helped fulfill that dream. So I think a good starting point <coughs> for your uh, conversation with us would be describing the China dream as you see it, as you have understood it over the years, and also to answer the critical question that your book attempts to answer, which is, what if the China dream mm -hmm. is to replace us, just as America replaced the British Empire, without firing a single shot? Michael Pillsbury, welcome to this discussion. Thank you, Ambassador Haqqani. Uh, I would answer your question about the China dream by explaining a few things that are in the book that I think are its new evidence about China's secret strategy for what China calls the 100-year marathon. This is not my idea. It's a, from a Chinese book. <clears throat> and I'd also point out that today the Chinese believe, I think correctly, that we're in year 65 of the 100-year marathon. That means there's 34 more years to go. So there's a lot of things on the American side that I proposed in the last chapter that we can do. And one of them is the, and they're, they're related to what the China dream is. Because to some degree, what you might call the American dream and the China dream are compatible. It's not a zero sum, you know, you can't have your dream if I want to have my dream. <clears throat> and the overlap is the focus of a number of organizations here in Washington, D.C. that I not only praise, I say we have to expand their budget, they have to do more. There's nothing like lighting a candle instead of praising the darkness. And the candles that are already going, I list several of them in the last chapter in the recommendations. Number one, the National Endowment for Democracy. Done a great deal in China, has to do a great deal more. Its budget began very low, 
uh, <clears throat> it has the same president it's always had. He's like a lifetime president of the National Endowment for Democracy. He's made a number of speeches about democracy in China. He's seen his budget grow, I think, uh, 10 times bigger than it was in the beginning. And he attended the Oslo ceremony when Liu Xiaobo received the Nobel Peace Prize and was not there because he's in jail. I say a lot in here about the China dream and Mr. Liu Xiaobo, who I first met in 1989 when he was at the Tiananmen Square demonstration. Our acting ambassador at the time, Peter Thompson, and I drove down to Tiananmen Square in the embassy Cadillac with the flags going. We got out of the car. We went in to see the students. No one knew, of course. That's very important. No one knew what was going to happen. It appeared to be a peaceful demonstration in Tiananmen Square against corruption, of all things. And we met with Liu Xiaobo and the others. I still remember he's a chain smoker. He had aviation glasses on. Uh, when the president of the National Endowment for Democracy went to Oslo, he and many other countries who did not, who were either there or not there, this drew attention from China. The China dream is, in fact, to have what they call the harmonization or harmony in the whole world. And their position is, when this happens, by 2049, if not sooner, all countries will get along, and there won't be organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy. There also will not be trouble from Human Rights Watch, from Amnesty International, especially not from Radio Free Asia, which I see some people here in the room helped me create Radio Free Asia in 1989. It was resisted strongly by the State Department, testified against it. This will destroy U.S.-China relations if we broadcast in Mandarin about human rights and democracy and various things into China. So I'd, I don't want to give all these organizations names. Uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce has recently joined up. They issued a report about the gangsterization of American companies in China, <coughs> trade secrets being stolen, uh, Chinese companies being treated in a very favorable way, American companies not. Uh, the China dream seems to be quite comprehensive. They thought a lot about it. They say, don't worry, China will not be a hegemon, will not be a tyrannical country in ruling the world the way America has been. And I want to mention a couple of uh, Chinese names I hope you all will remember and, and keep with you. They're in the book, and they're important to understand Chinese thinking. They're both in the fourth tone, the falling tone. One of them is Ba. Can everybody please say Ba? Ba is a hegemon. It also means tyrant. It's the way America leads the world. But China, when it has double or triple our economy, today it's surpassed us, according to the World Bank last month. The Chinese economists are writing that by 2030, it will be double. This is part of the China dream. The Chinese economy will be double us by 2030. And by 2049, the end of the 100-year marathon from the book's title, China's economy will be triple or more our economy. But they say China will not be a ba at that time. China will use its virtue, its soft power, its natural attractiveness, and perhaps some military forces when there's disharmony and countries do not go along, 
with the virtuous leadership. But this is all part of their vision of the China dream that in some, in some books they actually talk openly about the American model, how America surpassed England, Great Britain, without firing a shot by a series of techniques the Chinese believe their studies of American-British relations have shown them. There's one book in particular called The Eclipse of Britain by a British professor who explains in London, for this 100-year period, the 100-year marathon the Americans ran against England, the, there was an anti-American faction that said, don't let these Americans get out of hand. We have to crush them or use force against them in the Caribbean, for example, in Panama, during the time of Theodore Roosevelt. But there was also a pro-American faction that said, no, America is just like us. They're surpassing us. It's no big deal because they're us. And the Chinese view seems to be the 100-year marathon should not have the use of force as part of it, ideally. And they're quite sensitive in their writings to who is who in Washington, D.C., who is a healthy force, a friend of China, someone who needs to be supported and praised and visit Beijing, and then who is an unhealthy force, who is trying to set back this 100-year marathon process. And that's a whole chapter I give on what I call the message police, the message police, that it's actually becoming more and more difficult. One reason I wrote the book, it's becoming more and more difficult to get just the straight facts about U.S.-China relations because there's so much spin applied by either the Chinese government itself or Americans who claim to have an enlightened understanding of U.S.-China relations. That's kind of a long answer, but, and if I were an ambassador, I wouldn't give such a long answer. But it's, I'm trying to get into why I wrote the book, how the Chinese think, how much I've borrowed from their own writings to try to explain in a sympathetic way, this is their dream. And some countries and some Americans and some organizations are in the way of the 100-year marathon. So they have sort of harsh treatment in mind for those organizations. Great. The very first chapter of your book is titled Wishful Thinking. So, and it, it, it starts off with that incident uh, involving uh, the Chinese artist uh, Tsai Guochang. Tsai Guochang. I'm trying to correct uh, the pronunciation, but you know what? I'm becoming more, more like Americans now. You know how they say that if you know several languages, you're multilingual. If you know two languages, you're bilingual. And if you know only one language, you're American. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> So, you have a lot of so, good jokes about so, <laughs> Americans. Uh, so, so tell us that incident and what, <coughs> what it led you to lead your book with it. Well, and it's an example of my wife and I uh, admiring and loving Chinese art. We have a lot of Chinese Tang Dynasty and Song Dynasty sculptures and sometimes Chinese delegations who come to our home say, you know, if you truly love China, you could give it back to the, mother, to the motherland. But since China now has 150 billionaires, Chinese art is going up in value. This particular artist performed something that's called the Exploding Christmas Tree. About a month before Christmas, uh, my wife Susan had been the co-chair of a gala that raised $2 million for our National Asian Art Museum, the Fura Sackler Gallery. And the next day, uh, Secretary of State Clinton gave an award 
and there was a big payment made to this artist to blow up an American Christmas tree on the National Mall. And everybody applauded, including me, big crowd, senior officials. Uh, one of the Secretary Clinton's representatives held up his medal. He's been given a medal for contributing to diplomacy through art. And I wondered, how can this be? Why are we paying so much money to blow up a Christmas tree so close to Christmas on the National Mall? As I say, I was applauding. Then I, with the help of one of the defectors, I discussed six defectors in the book who, have, who are in disguise. Uh, but one of the defectors helped me check out the artist, and I found all kinds of things about him online that I had not known. I don't think the Smithsonian or the State Department knew either. That he's quite a nationalistic guy. He talked about 9-11 as an artistic spectacle to behold. And he said his favorite book in one interview was a book called Unrestricted Warfare, about how to use terrorism and, and cyber attacks to bring America to its knees by two Chinese colonels who I talk about in the book. Um, they're in the so-called hawk faction. So I thought by beginning with that story, I would show how Susan and I try to help Chinese art, how we go in good faith to see the show, and then how we learn, oh my God, there's a bigger story here than we realized. In many ways, he's having a little fun with us. We pay him. And it's part of a larger story that in our own traditions, Mark Twain uh, has a great novel called Adventures of Tom Sawyer. And one of Tom Sawyer's immortal tricks is very close to Chinese strategy. He has to whitewash a fence. He's being punished for it. It's very bad. It's very hot. But he tricks his, his friends into painting the fence for him. How does he do that? He appeals to them. Oh, you know, only the best person can, can paint this fence. I, you can't have the brush. And they all do what in Chinese is called wu wei ar zhi. Wu wei means non-action. Ar zhi means to control through non-action. It's part of another concept in here we can all say today, fourth tone, sure. Sure, just like you sure are smart. Sure is flux or situation or doing things earlier than the other guy can do them. So Wu Wei and Sure and Tom Sawyer getting his friends to paint the fence for him, it's all part of the same idea. Use the other country's force or technology to win the 100-year marathon. And I try to show in here how some of the defectors told us this is what China's been doing. An extract from the book. We Americans still don't see China the way it sees us, a condition that has persisted for de decades. The answer lies in an ancient proverb that says, cross the sea in full view, or in more practical terms, hide in plain sight. It is one of the 36 stratagems and essay from ancient Chinese folklore. All these stratagems are designed to defeat a more powerful opponent by using the opponent's own strength against him without his knowing he's even in a contest. Mm -hmm. Explain. Well, part of the, the reason the title of the book, <clears throat> 100-Year Marathon, the subtitle is China's Secret Strategy. This is not an openly declared strategy. In fact, I use a line from an American movie called The Fight Club, that the first rule of The Fight Club is you don't talk about The Fight Club. So China does not openly describe this strategy. In fact, they're very sensitive about it being exposed. And it goes back to a secret quote that Chairman Mao himself 
told other leaders in 1955 and repeated a couple more times to have a very hard time getting this quote out of the Chinese. One of the hawks revealed it in 2010. The quote from Mao is, you know, China's greatest contribution to all mankind is going to be to catch up and then surpass America. And Mao tells his colleagues, this will take us from 50 to 75 years. But we've got to do it. And he begins to pull away from the Soviet model. Then he tries the communes. 20 to 40 million people die. Then they get on to the new approach of the secret strategy. We need to follow many aspects of the American model. We need to get the Americans to paint our fence for us. How can we do that? They do a lot of analysis, and they begin to realize science, technology, investment, exports to America, getting companies that come in and provide high tech to China, all of this big package we've got to get if we're going to implement Chairman Mao's concept. So they begin to do that in 1969 when four Chinese generals write a memo to Mao. Mao's still alive. They say we need to follow the example of the three kingdoms, 200 AD. We need to bring the Americans over. We need to bring Nixon to Beijing. At this point, Nixon and Kissinger are issuing anti-China comments. President Nixon gives a press conference February 69. I'm building a ballistic missile defense system against China, not the Soviet Union. Kissinger, in his new book, Kissinger reveals five times the Chinese invite Nixon to come to China. Five times the Americans either don't get the message or they turn it down. Yes, it's in Kissinger's book. Specifically, at one point, a letter. I didn't really believe it existed. I went out to the Nixon Library and got it. It's a letter from the Chinese to President Nixon. Please come to China. One-page letter sitting there in the archives, the original, still there, the Nixon Library. Kissinger says, we turned this down because it was too risky. So the problem with understanding China's secret strategy is until these documents are declassified on both sides, we don't really know how the secret strategy began and how it's been working out. And I, declass I got the security review authorities to declassify a number of these documents and the, the American presidential decisions, uh, the memos to and from Kissinger and Nixon, and also part of the Chinese story now beginning to come out. But I hope others will follow me in trying to trace this secret strategy. It's denied by the Chinese at first. Then if you say, well, what about the book by General Xiong on the memo of the four generals? What about the Americans not taking the initiative to open China, but China opened up America? Then Chinese officials and scholars will say, well, yes. How did you know that? So we're making progress unraveling the true history of this uh, secret strategy on the Chinese side. So basically you're suggesting that China wooed America with a clear plan, and the Americans think that they wooed China uh, with a plan, not, though not necessarily that clear. And then thoughts like, you know, 36 uh, stratagems that are rooted in folklore and something that goes back to 200 A.D. Yes. I mean, look, this is a nation where when you talk about history, the manner is so-and-so, he's history. You know, that's like it doesn't matter. 
in uh, America. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. And yes. so That's how, right. how, how, how is this country going to be able to understand <laughs> another culture or another country that thinks in 100-year terms? Uh, we are lucky if in this country people can have an eight-year plan uh, when, 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 when a president gets elected for the first time and assumes that he will get reelected. Uh, so so how, does, how does America deal with this? Well, what I'm really trying to do is put the issue of China and the narrative of our relations with China on the presidential election debate agenda for 2016. China was not much of an issue in 2012. Uh, Mitt Romney has a chapter on China in his book, No Apology. And Romney brings up, we need to be more competitive with China. But there's not really much of a debate. And what I'd like to see in, in uh, 2016 is the, our media, who would really dominate the issues. If they're going to ask, if everybody knows, if Gwen Ifill and Judy Woodruff and Jim Lehrer and Fox News are going to raise a topic in the presidential debate, <coughs> we better be ready. So if the media starts saying, well, what's this all about? Is China really doing these things to us? And are we sort of naive and gullible? We'll get our presidential candidates to become engaged with the topic. So far, only two have really talked about it. Uh, Elizabeth Warren has a comment online, one of her speeches, where Elizabeth Warren is talking about losing jobs, uh, the middle class, and how China invests deeply in infrastructure. And she gives a percentage of GDP. So she's kind of admiring the Chinese model. That only, if only America could be like that. In fact, that's the title of a book by Tom Friedman, which is quite good. Uh, I think the title is roughly, We Used to Be Like That. There's a similar book by Richard Haas, the Council on Foreign Relations President, called Foreign Policy Begins at Home. Big section on China, competing with China. So the idea is there, but it's not yet a presidential issue because there's so much complacency. Because the narrative in the media today is China's going to collapse. It's very backward. They're kind of stupid. We can look down on them. And, but besides, we opened up China. We're the ones responsible for all their growth. That narrative is all wrong, in my view. And I try to show with the new evidence in, in this book, I try to show if it's a different narrative, that China is really outfoxing us, I think that's a presidential candidate kind of question. And that would be the Pillsbury dream. As Grant Eiffel or Bill O'Reilly asks all the candidates, well, gee, what about this book, The 100-Year Marathon? You know, have you read that? And the candidate says, well, no, what, what book is that? And then we're off and running. So we've had the American dream, we've discussed the China dream, and now we're talking about the Pillsbury dream. <laughs> um, my dream would be that you would actually share with this audience, the Haqqani dream would be that you, at least for this afternoon, that you share with this audience what you have described in your book as the false assumptions made by Americans about China. But before I do that, I want you to sort of tackle the question of economics because, you know, militarily, the United States is far superior, has much more military prowess than, you know, most countries in the world, including China. Um, so this challenge that you talk about, basically, yeah, it may be a secret strategy, but what do you say to somebody who says, all they're doing is developing themselves more economically and you're not keeping pace. Your manufacturing is in decline. Your mm -hmm. economy is yes. not doing so well. So essentially, you can't blame China for it. What the Chinese are doing is they have a better plan for their own improvement. Yes, that's exactly right. And they got the plan from us and the World Bank. I try to show in one long chapter 
I call it the capitalist charade. And I show how did the Chinese design their current economic system. They got it in large part from a combination of the World Bank, the IMF, some American economists, and a wonderful defector uh, from Taiwan who swam across to China, ends up going off to the University of Chicago to get a PhD in economics from the conservative economists in Chicago, goes back, provides a lot of advice for how to create an economy that will break the rules of the World Trade Organization, will appear to be capitalist. That's why the chapter is called the capitalist charade. But in fact, will be roughly half state-owned, and the government intelligence services will provide trade secrets that they steal from other companies around the world, including Germany, and give them to the state-owned enterprises that the Chinese grew to calling the national champions. A national champion is a state-owned company that is going to get on the Forbes 500 list or the Fortune 500 list. Anybody know how many Chinese companies used to be on the, for, on the Fortune 500 list 15 years ago? Zero. How many today? 90, almost a fifth of the list, Chinese companies. Many are state-owned. Uh, this approach, in part from the World Bank and defectors like uh, Justin, his name is Lin Yi Fu, the man I was telling you the story, he swam across from Vietnam as a Taiwan Army captain, he defects, he becomes a famous economist. What does the United States do about Mr. Mr. Lin? Bob Zellick, a friend of mine, makes him vice president of the World Bank and chief economist. Serves for five years. He and some other famous economists in China have a forecast now that China's growth rate is going to stay at 7 to 8%. Another 30 years. They believe deeply in the marathon. They believe China's on the right track. So the kind of question you raise about economics in a 100-year marathon, I'm trying to say actually they're really not following the rules. If you look at the Chamber of Commerce, World Trade Organization legal cases, if you look at U.S. Trade Representatives' annual report on China, uh, our government is very quietly saying, you know, you guys are breaking the rules all the time. And there's an effort by some organizations in Washington to sue the Chinese even more for breaking the rules. And right now, the, the hot topic in our business pages uh, in Washington and in Beijing, too, is something called the BIT. If you're a real insider, you know about the BIT struggle going on right now. It's the hottest topic. BIT is Bilateral Investment Treaty. And our idea is the Chinese promise they'll treat American companies operating in China the same as they treat the national champions. And the talks are secret, but there's a general discussion in the press that they're not going well. <laughs> there's some other trade negotiations going on. The Chinese are excluded from the Trans-Pacific Agreement, for example. Same idea. The, the TPP, as it's called by insiders, uh, pretty much says you can't have state-owned enterprises, national champions, be doing what China's doing. So they're not in the talks. We'd like to get them in, but they know the entry price is going to be to acknowledge that they have these gigantic companies that are unlike any company in the world, really. Maybe some of the Russian 
natural resources combines are like that. But to have a CEO chosen by the Communist Party, to have them rotate among companies according to the Communist Party's decisions, to feed espionage um, from other companies in the world, trade secrets, to give them low-priced loans, low-market loans, to have ambassadors overseas, it'd be like you get a message, you know, uh, Pakistan Airlines needs to have this done. Maybe you do it, I don't know. But an American ambassador is not really supposed to show favoritism toward individual companies. So this, my chapter on the capitalist charade is really quite important, that if we focus on a Chinese weapon system here or a Chinese missile there, that's important to the Pentagon. But actually, I don't have much military stuff in here. People think, oh, this is a Pentagon hawk, you know, trying to raise money for the new long-range bomber. Actually, the long-range bomber isn't even in here, although it was announced today by the Air Force. It's going to cost a half billion per plane, and the Air Force would like to see about 100 of them. So you can do the arithmetic. <laughs> and the, some indiscreet Air Force officers have even said this bomber is all about China, penetrating deep into China which the hawks in China love, because then they can say, oh my God, we need this. No, this is not about military things. This is about the economic, technological, and political challenge from China. Because you talk about the 100 uh, new bombers uh, that the Air Force wants, but also news today is how American manufacturing is really still struggling. You know, today hasn't risen. So, share us. Our index yeah. of success in manufacturing, our competitiveness index for manufacturing is going down like and that. Basically, China's number the, one. The, the whole idea needs to be reinvented as to what is the purpose. Should we replace manufacturing with something else as the engine of growth right. in this country? And that has not yet happened. False assumptions. What do you think? I mean, there are five that you've listed in your book. Go ahead. Uh, but shall you I read them? Yeah, you should read them out. Do you remember them yes. or you've forgotten? You? <laughs> I've forgotten so my the five. The man wrote <laughs> the book and then has forgotten and wants you all to buy it well, and you, read it. You've uh, no, made no, fun no. of Americans consistently, no, no, so that includes I me. I wasn't <laughs> making fun of Americans. I was just sharing jokes which are meant to make people think yes. about certain things in which mistakes are made, manners in which mistakes are made. You also have a joke, by the way, in your book. I'm going to read it out now. Now that you've poked have, fun at I my have, jokes, I have, I have to. Jokes. I have to. Yeah, exactly. I have to stand up for my Brezhnev poke. joke. Yes, your Brezhnev <laughs> joke. And the that's Brezhnev a, joke. Uh, that's a Russian joke. Yes, yeah, it's a Russian joke. <laughs> so now you're saying that the Americans can't make jokes. Come and, uh, on. <laughs> um, so, Dr. Pillsbury mentions in his book um, mm. a joke that was uh, uh, shared with him by Soviet diplomat Matt, uh, this is Arkady Shevchenko in 1969. Yeah. And the joke runs as follows. Uh, Brezhnev calls Nixon on the telephone. Brezhnev says, the KGB tells me you have a new supercomputer that can predict events in the year 2000. Nixon says, yes, we have such a computer. Brezhnev says, well, Mr. President, could you tell me what the names of our Politburo members will be then? There's a long pause at the other end. Uh, Brezhnev laughs and says, ha ha, so your computer is not so sophisticated after all. Nixon says, no, Mr. General Secretary, it answers your questions, but I cannot read it. Uh, Brezhnev says, why not? And Nixon responds by saying, well, it is in Chinese. Um, so the false assumptions you have uh, listed in your book are, number one, that engagement brings complete cooperation. I think you and I probably agree on that one. Because okay. in my book, I've made the same argument that this is a general assumption, especially in the State Department, that engagement leads to cooperation sometimes, and there, nobody gives any margin for uh, the other side actually manipulating the engagement. So that's, that's, that's a 
Uh, that's something I think uh, that's interesting. The second false assumption you say is uh, that China is on the road to democracy, and you believe that that's not the case. The third assumption is that China is uh, a fragile flower. You know, it's not. Uh, it's not going to be militaristic at any yeah, point. Yeah, if we put pressure on China, they'll collapse, and yeah, yeah. it'll be a terrible thing. And then there is the assumption that China wants to be and is just like us. And that, mm -hmm. of course, is where I started my conversation and the jokes that I started making, which is this is an assumption that I've dealt with since I was 18. You know, everybody's saying, oh, everybody wants the same thing. And, for example, I've always argued, no, al-Qaeda doesn't want the same thing. The guy who's willing to kill himself doesn't want a better life, which is what the American dream is, a better life. So there's, there's a fundamental difference. This assumption that everybody wants the same thing is, is really undermining American uh, foreign policy and ability to deal with the rest of the world. And then, final assumption, which you talk about, which I think is very important, is that China's hawks are weak. Tell us more about it, because you seem to suggest that they are not as weak as Americans estimate them to be. Well, the Chinese military hawks are friends of mine. And I thank them by name in my acknowledgments. I thank 35 Chinese generals and admirals. I say this book would not have been possible without them. And they've kind of, uh, I hate to say the word suffered, but they don't like it when they read in Dr. Kissinger's book on China and many books on China, that hawks in China are kind of a fringe element. They're kind of... Uh, crazy, use a word sometimes used, they're irresponsible, and they're out of power. That's the last one they don't like, being out of power. But a Chinese hawk actually is in the government, wears a uniform in many cases, writes books, is a high-level party member, and participates as what you might call a political force in China, arguing against the doves. And I identify some of the doves in the book, too. Doves are, uh, in one case, right, there's a debate going on, a couple of debates going on right now, hawks versus doves. Uh, one is, should the constitution of China be above the party, to be above the Communist Party? And the hawks, of course, say, no, the party is supreme, the party knows what to do, so the constitution's a good thing, but it's below the party. And this has consequences all over China for the rule of law, and for uh, the future of democracy and human rights. Another debate going on right now is a power struggle over who should be president of China. And Dr. Kissinger, not to dwell too much on him, but he told everybody that Bo Lai was very charismatic. Dr. Kissinger flew to China. So this You can get this online now. It's a YouTube video. It's quite wonderful. Dr. Kissinger, at the age of about 89, this is three years ago, uh, four years ago, flew to Sichuan, is in a big stadium with 100,000 Chinese. Everybody's singing Mao songs, what they call red songs in China. Bo Xilai is the host, and he's shown, and he thanks Dr. Kissinger for coming. Dr. Kissinger makes a short speech. So the idea is Bo Xilai is kind of the future of China. He might be the next president, and he's, this is a good thing because he's helping poor people in Sichuan. He has kind of a program to bring back Mao Zedong. The military hawks like him a lot. Well, things didn't work out. And now there's some new material online. I'm looking at reporters here in the front row. There's some new material online recently that there was a standing committee Politburo deadlock, three to three, 
over who should, over whether Bo Xilai should be put in prison, arrested, put in prison ultimately for life, or not, whether he's a good guy, wants to bring back Mao, Dr. Kissinger likes him, what the hell? The vote's three to three. They had to call Washington, because Vice President Xi Jinping was here visiting, and he had the tie vote. Now this is media rumors only, because obviously it's very sensitive information inside China, how they choose their next leader. Uh, allegedly, Vice President Xi called back that I vote arrest Bo Xilai, which then leads to a gentleman named Zhou Yun Kang, who is the head of the security services in China, uh, also on the standing committee. He gets arrested. He's going to jail for life. Then some military officers, either who are either at the Sichuan Stadium singing the songs with Dr. Kissinger, or they were doing other things, those military officers, one by one, have been arrested. They're going to jail for life. So we're getting a treat here, a look into hawks versus doves in China. In this case, it appears the hawks may have lost. But as soon as President Xi takes office, he does something extremely interesting. He takes the other six members of the Standing Committee of the Politburo, the top seven guys who run China, no women in that groups. sorry. He takes them to the, a temple of the hawks called the National Museum of China. Susan and I went there. So everybody should go. If you want to understand the 100-year marathon, it's laid out in this museum. It's the world's biggest museum by design, bigger than Louvre or British Museum or the Met. And in it, the 100-year marathon is laid out. The first one is 1840 to 1949. Kind of demonizes the Americans, by the way. And then it talks about the next hundred years. The rest, Fuxing Zhilu, it's in Chinese called Fuxing Zhilu, the Restoration Road, which means restoring China when it had a quarter to a third of the global GDP. So President Xi, in his first time out as president, is going to pay homage to the hawks view. Then he starts having a series of meetings with the Chinese military. He goes aboard ships with them. He starts praising them. And he indicates that he really likes and is receptive to the hawks, two of whom I praise in the back of my book. They're called the two Liu's. It's two generals who he's particularly close to. General Liu Yuan is the son of China's former president. He's written a long essay on how in human civilization, everything good comes from war. The other Liu Liaozhou is a major general who I met first met at Stanford, came to Stanford for a year. A lot of these guys are very well-educated. Two of the top hawks have PhDs from Berkeley in political science, Chu Shulong and Yuan Chetong. PhDs from Berkeley in political science. That's one of our assumptions. Engagement, you know, if you, get, if you engage, everybody will go home and want to become a democratic activist. These two guys get Berkeley PhDs in political science. They go home and they demonize the national doubt for democracy. They say the Americans are out to start a war. So these are hawks. I'm sure there's a joke in there about uh, <laughs> them choosing the wrong school. I mean, go to Berkeley. And, uh, That's right. Um, but, but, but I won't make that So you that get the joke, idea so. of the hawks versus doves. Yeah. Well, um, you also talk about <clears throat> the American ignorance about Chinese history, about, you know, uh, in great detail about the Chinese strategy called Xi, 
and then of course the whole subject of uh, um, how China is influencing others on how they view China. Uh, but mm. I am not going to get into all of that because I'm Why not? hoping. Well, because I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm now. This is the time when I open it up for questions from the audience, and I'm sure there are many. My request there would be: uh, introduce yourself, an affiliation, uh, short questions, uh, and uh, let us try and get as many as possible. So, hands up for questions. Yes. Why don't we have the first question right here? This is Dr. Christopher Ford. From Dr. Ford. Author of a very important book on China. I was just about to introduce myself, sorry. Uh, <laughs> a former, Please go ahead and introduce yourself. Former for Hudson the scholar, I should say. Um, I believe you're a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, I'm, I'm looking well. forward to reading your book, Mike, um, and uh, thank you for your comments here today. Um, to the extent that, uh, having not read it, that I have a quibble, it would actually still be with this issue of secrecy ah. uh, in, in the title, uh, in the sense that it occurs to me, or at least it feels to me, as if much of what you're describing isn't, in fact, uh, all that secret, and that there, that, that there may be a, a, a my, my question builds upon that. I mean, it strikes me that it's been very clear for quite some time that, uh, that Chinese officialdom has been uh, very resentful um, of U.S. primacy on the world stage. They've mm -hmm. been obsessed by the way in which their own fall from primacy on the world stage mm -hmm. uh, was the result, as they see it, of a, a whole litany of foreign depredations and humiliations. Uh, they've been convinced that that ancient status of primacy uh, was sort of a birthright, in a sense, for China, of which it has been unfairly deprived. And they've been very dedicated for the last century or so to the idea of national rejuvenation uh, and return. They've been focused upon in their international relations theorizing, uh, the idea that the country that is the dominant state in the world system sets the rule for that. Mm -hmm. And they assume that should a particularly appropriately virtuous lead state arise, uh, unlike the United States or the British before us, um, that the rest of the world will sort of spontaneously and harmoniously come uh, into conformity with the norms and values of that lead state. But these are not things that are in any way secret. And in, in a sense, my question for you is, you know, to the extent that these are themes of China's long-term strategy, which I would be willing to accept that they are and believe that they are, um, these are themes that have been hiding in plain sight, almost mm -hmm. as uh, Ambassador Khani mentioned a few minutes ago. Um, and I guess the question then is, the interesting issue almost becomes one less of Chinese secrecy about this than of what it is about us and mm -hmm. our policy community and our yes. sinological community that has refused to see what has been hiding in plain sight. I'd like to ask you a little bit about that. So let's um, turn this around and tell us a little bit about how it is and why it is that we have responded or not responded in the ways that we have to this fairly non-secret secret, secret right. strategy. Uh, Excellent question. I would say there are aspects of China's secret strategy that really are secret. What you're laying out correctly, the themes of the Chinese narrative that's going to be covered in your next book on how the Chinese see America in a sort of in a mirror, um, that's broadly known in China. Some of those themes are on, in, on the museum, the National Museum walls are the various things you've laid out. Uh, for example, the need to what they call Xi Xue. Xue is like snow or clean. Xi is to avenge. Or, and the concept of, of avenging the hundred years of humiliation. This is on the museum walls, in Chinese books. But where it becomes secret is the techniques and means that are used to implement these broad themes. You mentioned about five or six of the broad themes. Um, 
The book is late. It's going to come out November 1st. You know why it's late? Because I thought I've got to lay out evidence of the secret strategy. I was not in control of the evidence. It had to go through FBI, CIA, and DOD in a fourth place security review, and they took many, many months to remove a few things and let most of it out. It's a message to China, really, that the security review authorities, in some cases fairly senior officials, got involved, that they're willing to let the material in here out about the secret nature of the strategy. If they had not done that, we, the book wouldn't exist. I was not prepared to go in exile like Snowden, you know, fly to Hong Kong and Moscow, and I was not prepared to be like private Chelsea Manning and just say to the press, as he allegedly did, and will spend most of his life in prison because of it, hey, look at all these cables. So I put together the evidence that I thought was about the secretiveness of the strategy, the defector interviews, some other materials, and I submitted it. And I think the fact that it's been approved to be made public um, suggests that somebody somewhere wants to send a message to the Chinese. We're not as clueless as you thought. At least some of us understand what you're up to. So yes, broad themes that you laid out, but the implementation is often quite unknown to the public. And the six defectors, I start out each chapter with a defector story. In one case, one of the defectors says something different from what you and I might think are is Chinese strategy. She tells us, and she ultimately gets $2 million for doing this. She says, Jiang Zemin sings Elvis Presley songs in English. China does not engage in proliferation behavior from the top. It's only these rogue companies. She has a series of very wonderful, um, pleasing stories about U.S.-China cooperation is going to be unlimited. And she has access to President Jiang Zemin. This is all quite wonderful. And other defectors suffer because they have a different story to tell about Chinese strategy. <clears throat> and then one day, she's arrested by the FBI for espionage for China. And I tell her story in here. Uh, later on, the FBI issues a couple of reports how foolish they were to believe her. The FBI is not released. The songs are not being sung there, then? <laughs> the FBI has not released the damage assessment report of what she actually told the Chinese. So I make an appeal at the end of the chapter where I have a kind of spy versus spy series of case studies, our spies against China, Chinese spies against America. That was clearly a victory for them. But the FBI will not release the damage assessment report yet. I call upon them to, to do that. Um, another spy for China who was caught admitted it in court in Alexandria uh, in 86, uh, was found dead. He, he uh, allegedly put a black trash bag around his neck and asphyxiated himself. So he wasn't able to tell everything he had passed to China, but he said he'd been doing it for 30 years, and he was an employee of the CIA. So that's another one for the Chinese side. So in the spy versus spy story that I'm hoping to intrigue you to actually read the book, 
I try to bring out the secret aspects of the strategy that implement these broad themes. How, how is that as an answer? Does that uh, satisfy your question, or do you think that's dodging the question? Uh, if I may add to what your <laughs> answer is, as I understand it, the goals are out in the open, but the I think the book is, the word secret is, you know, we can quibble about it, but I think what, what, what uh, uh, Dr. Pillsbury is actually referring to is the secret implementation as a methodological, proper, mm -hmm. sort of thought-out uh, plan. And that's what he's talking about in the book. But as, as we always want people to do, when we have book events here, we want you to read the book. Uh, next question. Uh, one more sentence. We had an interesting discussion last night, politics and prose, and a Chinese gentleman said, well, you know, this is not secret. And he went a little bit further. He said, China doesn't really have a strategy at all. This is part of their very common line that they will say. Our leaders don't know what they're doing. Wang Ji-se, uh, probably their greatest expert on America, has written an article in Foreign Affairs magazine, Council on Foreign Relations prestigious magazine. He wrote an article a few years ago that China has no grand strategy. We're just kind of hapless people, uh, feeling groping stones as we cross the river. So the opposite of what you're implying, that everybody knows China has this secret strategy, well, no, the official Chinese position is we don't have a strategy at all. We're just doing the best we can, and it certainly isn't secret. So I hope you read the section in here where I give their account of their, their denial of having a secret strategy. Right at the back, Harry, right behind you, right behind you. Hi, uh, Tony Zhao with the State Legislative Leaders Foundation. So my question has more to do with how do you view foreign policy making as a part of um, Chinese politics decision making process in terms of the institutional setup? Uh, I mean, the Chinese leadership has a array of challenges they have to face. Um, you laid out this plan to take over the United States in a hundred years, but they have more plans to worry about. They have five-year plans, and, you know, the 12th, the 13th, uh, five-year plans. And we know that foreign policy making is not in the top um, the standing committee level, there's no special member representing uh, foreign policy. So I'm just wondering, if you zoom out a little bit, how do you think the Chinese leadership will weigh foreign policy making? Do you think they will weigh the uh, domestic agenda much more heavier than the foreign policy agenda? And do you think the regime is more inward-looking than outward-looking, if you assume that the, mm -hmm. the, the uh, Communist Party's primary target is to stay in power? And then, if let's assume foreign policy plays a big role in the top decision making. Um, do you think the, uh, the defectors and Hawks view will be very representative of the mainstream foreign policy thinking? You know, just like I can write a book about American politics based on my interviews with Tea Party members, but I wouldn't describe right. it as, you know, it could be an interesting book, okay. but just can, you know, pick, depict as a, a mainstream thinking. Right, thank you. Well, if I understand your question correctly, it you want me to answer by saying, you know, China's focused only inward and has so many problems and only a few hawks or the Tea Party equivalents of hawk uh, in China, only a few of them really want to have an assertive foreign policy. So isn't my book basically wrong? <laughs> so I would say, no, maybe not. Their, their idea, the Chinese leadership's idea of domestic policy, as you put it, for at least 30 years and maybe longer, has been what I said about Tom Sawyer getting his friends to paint the fence. To solve our domestic problems, we need help from the world outside. 
the way they often phrase it is China needs a peaceful security environment in which to flourish domestically. So it's a little bit of a trick question you're answering, you're asking. It's not foreign policy. That's a, that's a junior topic in China compared to domestic issues. Yes, you're right. But the domestic issues and their belief can only be solved with what? Exports to the outside world, especially the Americans. More foreign direct investment. They get 20 times more foreign direct investment from us than India. Is that just some natural thing? No. The Chinese leaders have worked very hard to get American high-tech investment in China. It's one of their top goals for 30 years. Now, is that a foreign policy idea or is it domestic policy? It's both. We need to get the Americans to wash our whitewash and paint our fence for us. There's a whole series of things that they, uh, the Chinese leaders state in their speeches for what they have to get from the outside world. And in some sense, the outside world owes them because of what Chris Ford mentioned, the century of bad treatment, of humiliation by these foreign powers. So the secret strategy in the 100-year marathon, what the book's really trying to explain is that if we use what Ambassador Haqqani is warning us, don't use American concepts that foreign policy and domestic affairs are somehow two different things. No, not in China. The only way to win the marathon is going to be successful terms of trade, investment, technology, and goodwill. They've got to get goodwill from the United States and their, and their other neighbors. This is a supreme foreign policy goal of China. Try to understand others rather than <coughs> from the American point of view, it's more important for the Americans to try and understand what the others are actually aiming for than assume that they are classified exactly like us uh, and, and that they're, they're structured almost like us. Yes, exactly. I, w I loved your opening comment about Americans like to either see a country as somebody we should bomb or somebody we should take to lunch. <coughs> and the Chinese have strong feelings about that. We're the one you should take to lunch. Well, and Chinese food is generally pretty good and quite popular <laughs> and cheap here. Uh, right here in the front. Harry. This is the president of the National Endowment for Democracy in the second row. I, I do know Carl very well. Hi, Robert Schreider with International Investor. Um, I noticed you mentioned very briefly the Senate inquiry back in 1996, mm -hmm. which uncovered an attempt by Chinese to directly influence the U.S. political process. It's much worse today. And when we talk about secrecy or transparency, can you talk to us or expound on the idea that uh, there's much more influence on Congress and the American democratic process today than there ever has been, particularly in a, in a very diplomatic way? They invite an awful lot of people right. on trips, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> well, I have to be careful in this area because I don't want to slander people and say, you know, you just say that because China's given you $100 million. That's considered blow the belt attacks in our political system. Um, what I'd rather say is praise a part of the Chinese secret strategy, which is really brilliant. And I was quite stupid back in 1999. <clears throat> I had a chance to uh, met with this beautiful woman in China. Uh, and I didn't understand what she did. She had a huge building, big building, staff of a thousand. And my host said, you've got to meet her. You know, she's a comer. So we had a long talk. She gave me <coughs> some, uh, some books and magazines. And, you know, I still have the photo 
I'm going to put the photo up online of my website, the hundred year marathon is dot com is a website. She's now the most powerful woman in China. She's a vice premier. She's on the Politburo. And she's here recently to uh, visit with Hillary Clinton. The two of them had a conference together. She came up with something called the Confucius Institutes. There's 350 of them in, China, in America. They offer money to universities to, and sign a contract to teach Chinese, and teach Chinese civilization. You think, well, what's wrong with that? And this has become quite a controversy in the newspapers of the world. What exactly is going on here? Stanford has, has won. There have been controversial Chicago. Uh, and some of them are being kicked out of, their, of these universities because they have certain sensitivities. You can't talk about National Endowment for Democracy. You can't talk about Dalai Lama. You can't talk about all kinds of things. And when they teach Chinese civilization, Confucius is responsible for some great works. One of them is called the Spring Autumn Annals. The Spring Autumn is all about quarrels and geopolitics and deception and trickery, things that are part of the 100-year marathon today. You go into a Confucius Institute and say, gee, I'd like to study Confucius's classic number five. You know, the one on the spring, autumn annals. The one on the rise and fall of five hegemons. Five what? Five ba. Confucius wrote about this. How you become a hegemon or how you bring an old one down. No, that's not really part of our Confucius Institute program. So this is all legal. It's in the billions and billions. It's all over the world. I just Susan and I went in to see one in South Africa recently. Massive Confucius Institute in South Africa. Um, having a huge kind of soft power impact. This is focused on the next generation. It isn't giving $100 million to an 80-year-old today to influence his or her views. It's looking at the next generation on college campuses. So that's something I admire. By the way, the lady's name is Liu Yendong. And uh, she actually laid this out to me in the meeting. Somebody, I always have an embassy escort to an in Beijing to make sure I don't get in, say the wrong thing, uh, and to take notes. And, and she, then you come back <laughs> from your meeting. And she, Madam Liu Yendong, actually laid out in this meeting. Where <laughs> we, we feel we need better soft power around the world. You know, could you help us? And I didn't fully grasp the significant resources, the billions and billions were going to go into this program. And the Confucius Institutes is only one of many programs. CCTV, uh, it's just a very breathtaking operation. That's the chapter in the book called The Message Police. And I try to express admiration for what they're doing. Completely legal. You say in the book that, and I'll quote, uh, from the 17th century to the modern era, Sinologists, missionaries, and researchers who visited and studied China were essentially led to accept a fabricated account of Chinese history. <laughs> Chinese sources played up the Confucian pacifist nature of yes. Chinese culture and played down the bloody warring states period. So I guess that's, that, that's the point you're making here. Yes, right in the middle. Thank now you. he's slipping um, away. He's got work to do. <laughs> 
<coughs> Beth Smith, PhD candidate at Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies. Um, my question is about um, U.S.-China relations in the context of two third-party relations that are in the news right now, specifically North Korea in the context of the um, cybersecurity and the nuclear um, discussions mm -hmm. that are going on, as well as um, with regards to Hong Kong and the um, democratization um, debates and discussions that are taking place. So I'd just like to get your opinion on how you think that those two um, triangular relations mm -hmm. are going to play out in this context. Thank you. Well, thank you for your question. On Hong Kong and North Korea, uh, the Chinese secret strategy for the 100-year for the marathon <laughs> is not to uh, upset the Americans. This is sort of like criteria number one. So in both cases, the Chinese official position, as I understand it, we want to help you on North Korea. We oppose, you know, nuclear weapons on the peninsula, either in South Korea or North Korea. And we want to work with you Americans uh, in the six-party talks or bilaterally or however. You know, we support your American goal. So that's very good news to Americans. And in Hong Kong, the Chinese position has been, oh, the worst thing that could happen is use of force, you know, by either side. So that's good news, too. And they say that China is going to implement their agreement with the British until when? 2047, just two years before the end of the marathon. So, yes, they will have a – Chinese government will have some, you know, light-handed role in previewing the candidates to be elected in Hong Kong. But not to worry about this, you know, they will still allow an election, which is according to the rules, the agreement with the British. But, of course, they want to, you know, the candidates have to have, have to have legal, you know, they have to pass the test before they can run. So that's all the Chinese Communist Party is going to do is just vet these candidates to make sure they're okay before there's an election. So both of those Chinese positions, you notice the subtlety there, don't directly confront the Americans. President Xi has a new slogan. He calls it the, the new model of great power relations. And in the new model, the rising power is going to peacefully replace the old power without a war. And President Obama, you would think, would accept the new model because it applies specifically to places like Hong Kong, North Korea, Iran, number of policy issues. But actually, President Obama has not accepted the new model of great power relations. This has caused a lot of concern in China. And my friends, the hawks in Beijing, are saying, you see, he won't accept the new model of great power relations. This proves the Americans are out to get us, to overthrow us, to encircle us, and to dismember us. President Obama and his team have given a different explanation. They have said, well... We, President Obama gave a speech, actually, saying, <clears throat> over time, we need to try to develop this new model. And the Chinese say, well, no, 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 you need to accept it now. Our president's been an hour and a half with you at the Sunnyland Summit talking about it. We don't need to, over time, move toward it. And Susan Rice gave a speech at Georgetown over a year ago. She said something similar. We need to operationalize and move toward the new model. So we, too, on our side, we're kind of giving lip service in public. Yes, U.S.-China relations are just filled with cooperation and happiness. 
We worked together on North Korea and Iran and a hundred things, climate change. But oh, when you start examining the details, oh, somehow North Korea still has nuclear weapons. Somehow the Hong Kong election system did not get fixed. It's not going to be a free election. There's a whole series of things that when you put the microscope into the agreement, I mentioned the bilateral investment treaty problem too. Well, no, you, we don't quite have agreement there. And for China, this new model of great power relations not being accepted by President Obama or Secretary Kerry, he made a speech on it. All the senior figures in the administration have said very, very subtly, we need to move toward the new model. But this is really one of the, it's probably the biggest single point of friction right now between the U.S. and China. And if you try to get an op-ed piece written or go to our media or ask presidential candidates, imagine this big presidential candidate debate in 2016 and someone says, well, how do you stand on the new model of great power relations? No one's ever heard of it in the mainstream media. But yet, in my humble opinion, this is the key point of friction right now between the U.S. and China, and everything else comes under that. We can't agree on accepting the new model, the Chinese proposal for a new model. Then the Americans have not accepted the idea that China can peacefully rise like America did against England. It means the Americans are still considering at least coercion against China and possibly the use of force. And then the hawks in China read into that also the rebalance, more ships, more planes. You read Ash Carter's speeches. He says that we should focus our defense research and science now on the Pacific and India. Well, you write about China's seven fears about the United yes, States. Yes, that's another which chapter. Is, which, which is another <laughs> chapter. And, and I hope that answers your question. But right here. these two things are part of the larger issue of accepting the new model or not. John Zan with CTI-TV of Taiwan. Thank you. Um, Michael, uh, two questions. One, where does Taiwan, where and how does Taiwan fit into the, uh, the Chinese 100-year uh, um, marathon, marathon uh, strategy? Second question, if you look at Chinese history since 1949, mm -hmm. um, many of the uh, top leaders or top leaders designated were actually brought down before they became top leaders. And some of the top mm -hmm. leaders who actually became top leaders, they seemed to have pursued the you know, totally opposing um, strategies or policies. Deng Xiaoping was considered the opposite of Chairman Mao. And Xi Jinping obviously pursued a much more assertive policy than two of his predecessors. How do you think the Chinese uh, uh, were able to maintain the consistency of a 100-year uh, um, um, strategy. Mm -hmm. How do they do that? The Chinese do um, maintain a longer-term perspective than the Americans. But as um, a previous uh, 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 question suggested, they only have like a five-year plan for five years. So how do, you, uh, how, how do they maintain the consistency? Thank you very much. Well, there's two questions. On the Taiwan question, the Chinese vision of the 100-year marathon is Taiwan is on China's side. Part of their secret strategy is to pull Taiwan over to China's side. And 
Madame Liu Yandung and her, remember the big building I talked about just outside Junan High? The mission of the Tongjianbu, it's called the United Front Department, is focused heavily on Taiwan. They want the Taiwan media, Taiwan businessmen, of whom there's, I don't know, almost a million now in, in China. Mm -hmm. They want Taiwan to come over to China's side. They believe it's a strategic mistake to alienate Taiwan. Their strategy in Washington is very similar. They want Taiwan to sort of not be part of the conversation. When we announce the rebalance and the pivot to Asia, there's no mention of Taiwan. Now, your second question is a little bit related to Taiwan. The hawks in China, some of whom sometimes a, a candidate, as you say, goes down. The 100-year the marathon strategy that I write about in, in some detail has been debated. It's not a clear blueprint. There's power struggles over how best to implement the marathon strategy. And it's caused the death of a number of leaders. Uh, it's not a casual debate. You know, gee, how do we surpass the Americans? Chairman Mao told us in 1955, our great contribution is to surpass the Americans. You know, the next year he said, well, maybe just 50 years. Then he shortened it to 10 years. First he said 25, then he said 20. Mao made a series of speeches, these secret speeches. And by 58, he was saying just 10 years we can surpass the Americans, especially in steel production. Well, many people are going to die over that statement. People tried to tell the chairman, no, we can't really do it in 10 years. They get fired or they get killed. And the debate comes up again in 1971, when Mao and the four generals I mentioned said, okay, let's bring Kissinger and Nixon. They wanted Nixon first. Kissinger kind of inserted himself into it. He admits it in his memoirs. They kept saying President Nixon should come to Beijing or an envoy. And Mr. <coughs> Dr. Kissinger said, well, obviously they mean an envoy. You know, has to go first, twice. So that led to the death of roughly 10 Chinese generals. And Mao sort of winks and says to Nixon, you know, it's in the, it's in the declassified documents. Mao says to Nixon, some people didn't want you to come. Don't worry about it. He meant he'd killed his top 10 generals who opposed this. And to this day, the mystery of this plane crash that's heading for the Soviet Union crashes in outer Mongolia. And the Chinese narrative is, well, they're traitors. You know, they tried to kill Chen Mao. They opposed Nixon coming. So they ran, and their plane ran out of gas, so they all died. And others are put on trial later on. There's another story, as you know, the Gang of Four story. In 76, they have a whole different vision. Mao's wife and the others in the Gang of Four, they have a different vision of how to do the 100-year marathon. And they commit suicide in jail, or they spend life in prison. A couple have come out now, actually. Uh, so this is a life-or-death struggle, how to do the 100-year marathon. But nobody can say, I mean, there's several things you can't say in China today. You want to stay in the party and in the government. You can't say, I don't want to surpass the United States. I'm just, I'd be happy to be the small little brother of the United States forever. No. You can't say, you know, the Dalai Lama is a very handsome guy. <laughs> why, do, why can't we invite him to Beijing? 
you know, and let him go back to Lhasa for a while. No. There's a whole series of what they call the nine don't says. So you're alluding to, with both Taiwan and other issues, these very bloody power struggles that's part of the Chinese message. If you're at the Confucius Institute and you're learning Chinese and you put your hand up, say, what exactly happened to these generals who were killed in 71 and the Gang of Four and... You know, why can't the Dalai Lama come? No, it's not on the curriculum of the Confucius Institute. So you're raising kind of sensitive, embarrassing questions. But I hope I've persuaded you that the goal is not unfair debate. Surpassing America as China's greatest contribution to the human race, unquote. Um, so final three questions right here in the front, you at the, and then the gentleman at the back. Uh, we won't have time enough for everyone, but I'm sure Michael will be here to sign books afterwards, <laughs> and therefore you can ask him some questions in person. Please go ahead. Hi, Mike. Uh, Nadia Chao with the Liberty Times, Taiwan. Uh, in the context of your books or your assumption, you know, how would uh, Xi Jinping is going to fit? Uh, he seems to be more uh, openly talk about the China stream and with uh, some uh, pretty concrete proposal. Uh, what China should do uh, in mm -hmm. his tenure. And the second question is that, uh, does, do you see, maybe this is going uh, a stretch a little bit too far, but does you, you know, Soviet Union see, Russia sees uh, China the way that U.S. see it? You know, does the mainstream uh, view from Russia, do they believe a peaceful rise, China? Thank you. Mm. Well, in terms of President Xi Jinping's plans, he's been very clear that he believes in reform. Uh, he has a new book out, some, something it's, it's white like this, and it has a little picture in the middle. And the book, I actually read it. Uh, the book is about improving governance, what he calls governance in China, which is a World Bank term. He wants to improve the efficiency of China, the growth rate, uh, he wants the Shanghai Free Trade Zone to do some experiments about foreign currency being easier to send back to companies. So President Xi is presenting himself as a reformer, an experimenter, someone willing to, you know, in some sense, have the 100-year marathon go faster. Why wait till 2049? So I see him <clears throat> as a guy... Uh, I first met, actually, I have a picture of him. Our, our slides didn't arrive in time, but I had a very nice picture of him in 1980. He's 27 years old. Uh, he came to the Pentagon. He's been to the Pentagon twice. I've been there both times. The first time he didn't talk, 1980. He's a note taker for a delegation of Chinese generals. And he put that photo in his book. He's proud of the old days in 1980 when he came to visit the Pentagon. Um, he's also quite friendly with the Hawks. They seem to appreciate him. So it's a contradictory um, two themes, you might say. I'm a reformer. I want China to really go faster in the 100-year marathon. But I like the narrative that the Hawks have been giving, that China's destiny uh, is really uh, something we should start talking about. 
So he's changing this, what used to be the sacred strategy. Everybody in Washington knew this. Tao Guang Yang Hui. Tao Guang Yang Hui. Hard to translate. It means roughly bide your time and nourish your obscurity. Well, now, what does that mean? It's, it, to put it in American, as Ambassador Haqqani would do, it's the movie I mentioned, The Fight Club. The first rule of The Fight Club is don't talk about The Fight Club. Tao Guang Yang Hui means don't talk about our long-range strategy. So President Xi seems to be saying, no, it's okay to start talking about 2049 and what the world's going to look like in 2049. And by the way, Nadia, it's very good news. 2049, that world is going to be really quite wonderful, according to President Xi. <laughs> and by the way, Taiwan is really not part of the story. It's going to be brought over toward China and not pose a problem anymore. What about the Russia part of the question? Does Russia view it exactly the way the Americans do? No, no. The Russians are having a very intensive debate in Moscow. You can find hawks and doves in Moscow about China. I went back to see uh, a guy I talk a lot about in the book. Is the person who first taught me about China. He was in my United Nations Secretariat uh, Political Affairs Department. He was sort of on loan from the Russian government. We both had plenty of time on our hands, so we talk about China. I went back to see him a few years ago with Susan in Moscow. He came to this seminar. We were quite surprised. He showed up, official seminar. And he said, I told you so. It emerged in Moscow that there are pro-China and anti-China points of view. The pro-China point of view is, hey, these guys are with us. The anti-China view is, hey, there's two million undocumented Chinese in Siberia. They're taking over all kinds of stuff in China. They drive too hard a bargain. This deal for 400 billion worth of natural gas, it's not finalized yet. But the price is really quite low, Chinese are offering. So in the case of Ukraine, Crimea, Chinese have not been fulsome in their endorsement of what Putin is doing. So I see a kind of growing fric friction, a kind of growing debate in Moscow over what to do about China. And I'm hoping that there'll be a Russian-language edition of the 100-year marathon. I have good news for you. The Japanese bought the translation rights. It's going to appear in Japan. That's good news for you. It's good news for me. <laughs> I got some indications. And for those who read Japanese. Yeah. The, the Chinese have told me, some, <coughs> some Chinese have told me, your last book was translated in China, published in China, which is true only one redaction, uh, we like to publish this book in China. I have not yet heard from the Russians. I'm hoping they'll like to publish it. Good. And last thing, I just checked Amazon. You know this is number four on the Amazon bestseller list this morning? It, it'll go up when these people <laughs> buy it, you know, even when they get it. So let's I'm hoping, get last, I'm hoping Christopher the Ford buys questions. more than one copy. The, the gentleman here, mm. and then there's one question right at the very back. That's it. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, Michael Yehuda, now at GW. Oh, my God, Michael Yehuda, one of our greatest China experts. Oh, sure. He's uh, going to pretend to ask me a question. Right? A very <laughs> uh, my question is this. Um, before the 100 years of humiliation, uh, China's main contact with the outside world was what we would now call its neighbors. Um, where, do, where do these neighbors fit in? to this 100-year um, marathon. Because after all, quite a number of these neighbors, some of them very important, 
are allies of the United States. Mm -hmm. Will these just uh, shed their alliance with the United States when they see the magnificence of Xi Jinping's <laughs> successors? <laughs> or where exactly do they fit in? I would add right. one further point, and that is in my conversations with uh, learned people in China. And your many books about Chinese foreign policy. Um, what comes across is their ignorance of uh, other countries. Mm -hmm. um, they, uh, in many instances, perhaps they know a great deal about the United States, but even my impression is many of those who uh, have a great deal of knowledge about the United States somehow have a lack of some basic understanding as to how the United States work. Mm -hmm. Um, neither their history nor their current political system seems to allow for an understanding of how democracies, with all their contradictions, with all their problems, have lasted and how they work. Could you please comment? Well, I have good news for you, Professor Michael Yehuda. The Hudson Institute Center for Chinese Strategy is going to have a series of events, essentially press conferences, uh, in which we're going to release uh, translations of Chinese strategic writings that I think are important and are not easily available. And one of the first topics is going to be this particular uh, kind of Chinese strategic writing about how well do they understand their neighbors and the United States as well. Because I think you're essentially correct that there's a lot of misperceptions. If we had to score the Chinese, now, now I'm saying, you know, don't forget, I'm saying they're outsmarting us, outfoxing us, you know, in some areas. So I would seem to be saying the Chinese are really, really smart and they know everything about their neighbors. And you're adding a kind of a cautionary note. Well, no, in your conversations, and I've had similar discussions, they don't seem to really get it very well about their neighbors. And I think it's, there's a, an area here for a kind of, uh, I hate to be a Pollyanna, but there's an area for further discussion with the Chinese about their misperceptions of a lot of things. On America, I have a chapter here called America the Great Satan. They say Abraham Lincoln began the containment policy. Yeah. Well, he was containing the South. <laughs> um, right. They got similar views on India. You know, that the Indians are this and this and this. Really kind of wild stuff about India. About Japan, they've got a series of narratives about Japan that they, they're really the samurai are still there and they love blood and they can't wait for the next war. So when they visit the Yasukuni Shrine, this is like part of the program. They say that Japanese have a peaceful scientific missile that they launch into space. This is really an ICBM, the Chinese hawks say. And there's 70 tons of missing plutonium in Japan. Well, it's obvious to the Chinese hawks what this is. It's in the underground nuclear weapons that have already been made. So when you get these kind of wild misperceptions, on the one hand, we can despair and say, oh, you know, what a pity. On the other hand, this is an opportunity if we made a list of these misperceptions and then tried to, I hate to say the word confront, that's a little bit too tough, but to discuss with them, hey, illustrate we, them. <clears throat> hey, stop saying this. Abraham Lincoln didn't do this. Woodrow Wilson didn't do this. Your whole narrative, your teaching in colleges and to your party members is false. Mm -hmm. 
if our leaders began to do that, they'd have to respond. And either we get better educated, oh my God, this is what they really think, or they'd have to back off. And the, the Chinese themselves do this with the Japanese. They're all over the Japanese on their textbooks about World War II. And there's some merit to it. But we are simply passive so far. And I think it's because of a lack of translations into English, which is what the Hudson Institute Center on Chinese Strategy wants to do, is to sort of bring out some of these materials that are open in China, but are not well known here and are really quite shocking. Great. Final question right at the back. I know there are many, many, many unanswered questions, but there'll be time to discuss them with Michael when you get the book signed. The gentleman, yeah, who has the mic. Sorry. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Dong Hui Yu with China Review News Agency of Hong Kong. Okay. And uh, I have a question, a uh, follow-up question on Taiwan. You mentioned that uh, for 100-year term, uh, Taiwan will be on Chinese side. So does it mean that you believe that Taiwan will be unified with China finally within 100 years? Uh, what would be the right strategic for the United States to deal with Taiwan issue in the context of power shifting in mm -hmm. West Asia Pacific area? Thank you. Good question. One of the Chinese misperceptions, really quite fascinating, they, the hawks when they write about America and Taiwan, they have us, they always write the same way. Taiwan is really an unsinkable aircraft carrier the Americans are using to contain China. And they have maps, sometimes they have a big map. And they'll show how Taiwan is blocking all these ports of China. And the Americans have their secret strategy, which is to block China from coming out into the ocean by building up Taiwan. And there's, I mean, there's other points to the narrative. But basically, the Americans and Taiwan are colluding to contain China. And this is a very sophisticated collusion the Americans and Taiwan are engaged in. Now, then there's the truth, <laughs> at least according to me. We don't recognize Taiwan as a government. We withdrew our military advisors. We had a Taiwan Defense Command that did plot with Taiwan in the 50s and 60s and had a war plan. We took it out. It's all gone. We make Taiwan Navy sailors take off their uniforms when they come to pick up boats in America when they get into our territorial waters. When Taiwan's jet fighter pilots come to Texas to train, they have to take off their insignia or their names that indicate anything to do with Taiwan's Air Force. Why? Because Taiwan doesn't exist as an official entity. In our official way of talking about Taiwan, we call it local authorities. Local authorities of what? Taiwan. <laughs> so, it's, you can't have it both ways. Either the Chinese are right that we're in this enormous conspiracy with Taiwan and Taiwan is part of the American side of the 100-year marathon, right? Or Taiwan is not, the Americans really not, don't involve themselves much with Taiwan at all, or there's something in the middle going on that Beijing and Washington are competing for Taiwan's love. And who is going to win that? 
We're going to get Taiwan to have McDonald's hamburgers and everybody learns English when we're telling them that you're not a country? Or is China going to do better because they say, hey, we're all Chinese, yellow emperor, you know? They read Taiwan's textbooks very carefully. Taiwan's textbooks talk about Chinese history. There's a little bit about Taiwanese people and DNA, you know, and mountain people. But it's pretty clear Taiwan is part of Chinese history. So who's going to win the 100-year marathon for the love of Taiwan? Washington or Beijing, I think, is an open question. Thank you very much, Dr. Michael Pillsbury, Senior Fellow and Director for Chinese Strategy here at Hudson Institute. It's been a really lively discussion. The book, The 100-Year Marathon, is available. I will keep Dr. Pillsbury sitting here so that you can bring it for signatures. Thank you all very much.